1: welcome to the lead i'm jake tapper in just a few hours president biden will address the nation in only his second ever oval office address his goal is to convince the american people that it will be important to spend 100 billion of their tax dollars the majority of which would help israel and ukraine the bottom line sources tell cnn is that president biden will not only try to make an argument about the immorality of what russia's vladimir putin and the terrorist group hamas have done but that the costs of u.s inaction of not supporting Israel and Ukraine would be harmful to U.S. national security. President Biden arrived back in the U.S. early this morning after roughly seven hours on the ground in Tel Aviv. President Biden says he pressed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there on Israel's plans for the next phase of the war. And he says he worked to secure promises from the Israelis for humanitarian aid. For the innocents in Gaza. The White House says this evening President Biden will also speak about trying to bolster the Ukrainian military even further. Ukraine, where recently delivered U.S. weapon systems have led to some of the most significant strikes against Russian forces in the last few days. But it's not just the public that President Biden needs to convince. It's also frankly some on Capitol Hill after House Republicans once again woke up this morning and chose incompetence. It's not clear that any aid package can get through Congress given that there remains no speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. For two weeks in a row, the Republican speaker-designate today, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, still does not have the votes. In fact, he seems to be losing support even further. And we're told that today's Republican meeting behind closed doors devolved into shouting and cursing at each other. It's a staggering display of self-regard and immaturity from House Republicans, while not only American allies, but Americans are being killed abroad. CNN is learning that Congressman Jordan is now hoping for yet another vote on his nomination for speaker. Tonight, we'll have more on that in a moment. But let's start in Israel with CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's in Tel Aviv for us. Caitlin, why has President Biden decided now is the right time for this speech?
2: Well, he's about to ask the American public for billions in dollars of aid to other countries, notably here in Israel, of course, where he just spent a whirlwind seven or eight hours on the ground meeting with the newly formed wartime cabinet as Israel is preparing for its next steps in in this war. And the president has vowed time and time again since that attack to support them. But he's also going to be tying this address tonight into what is happening in Ukraine. Also warning what about could, what could happen in Taiwan. And of course, also mentioning something that Republicans have repeatedly brought up while saying that they don't support sending more aid to Ukraine. And that's the U.S. southern border and fortifying that as well. So all of these are going to be pieces that you see the president tie into his, his address tonight. And it's something that you don't often see. He has only spoken To the nation from the resolute desk in the oval office twice since taking office he did so around the debt deal negotiations over the summer and he's going to do so again tonight because he's about to ask congress uh, for hundreds or for tens of billions of dollars ten billion specifically for israel jake and trying to to send this message to them that it's important to stand up for democracies abroad ones that could that are coming under threat now that could come under threat in the future and tying this all back to why it matters to Americans. And we've seen strong support from Americans when you look at the poll numbers when it comes to Israel, but it's been slipping when it comes to Ukraine. And the president actually just got off the phone with President Zelensky. So that is kind of how he's tying up this trip that he made here to Israel, where I should note, the president did not get everything he wanted. Yes, we are expecting to see aid go from Egypt into Gaza, something that has been desperately needed. The president did not secure an agreement to to have civilians who are in Gaza, including Americans, I should note, be able to get out. But it is part of an effort that he felt this trip was important. And he'll be tying that into the address tonight from the Oval Office.
1: You also have some new reporting, I'm told about conversations that President Biden had directly with members of Israel's war cabinet. And and it turns out that some of them were were interested in House Republicans inability to agree upon a speaker.
2: Yeah, it's kind of hard to think about that. The president is here in this war torn country where even in Tel Aviv, where the president was just a few moments ago, uh, sirens were going off, they had the Iron Dome intercept another missile above the sky, obviously something that's a pretty regular occurrence here in Tel Aviv and certainly has been since October 7th. And the president and the prime minister of Israel and the new wartime cabinet, they're all sitting in this ballroom in the, bo- the basement of a hotel, it doubles as a bunker. I should know, you don't have to go anywhere when the sirens go off there because it's essentially uh, already a bomb shelter. And the chaos that is happening on Capitol Hill got brought up, Jake. They were asking the president about this. They were talking about what was happening as Jim Jordan was losing that vote that y'all were discussing yesterday again and still could not get the votes because it affects what the president is going to ask Congress for tonight, which is all of these tens of billions of dollars in aid. He can ask all he wants, but until the House actually either gets a speaker or empowers the temporary speaker, they can't get that aid passed. It is completely frozen. And so it is something that is even a concern here in Israel. And the president brought it up. He talked about it, lamented it. He did make assurances that he thinks in the long run it is not going to stand in the way of Israel ultimately getting that aid. But it's just notable, Jake, that it was even brought up at all during this trip.
1: Yeah, Kaitlin Collins in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Let's go now to CNN's Ben Wiedemann, who's in southern Lebanon for us. And Ben, we're, we're finally seeing some images of repairs being made to the Rafa crossing in southern Gaza. That's the crossing into Egypt. Egyptian officials and President Biden are predicting that it will be open tomorrow. Um, How likely is that actually looking?
3: Well, we understand from people on the ground in Rafah that they are at the moment working to repair uh, the road between the Egyptian side and the Palestinian side at Rafah, that of course has been damaged as a result of Israeli bombing. And they do believe that it will be ready for uh, aid trucks to start Uh, moving in. We understand that those trucks uh, full of aid that have assembled in El Arish, which is to the west of uh, Rafah, are preparing to move. So it does appear that at this point uh, it, it will go ahead exactly at what time on Friday, we don't know. But we also know that trucks are already at the Rafah crossing. They're handing out numbers so everybody knows what order they're going in. And they've already handed out, according to our source on the scene, 25 numbers. But uh, we understand in total, there are hundreds of trucks waiting to go in.
1: And the, and the leader of Egypt, al-Sisi, is, he also called on uh, the Egyptian public to get out on the streets and, and protest in solidarity uh, with the Palestinian people. How unusual is that to have a demonstration on the streets of Egypt?
3: Well, when it's... In response to a call from President Sisi, it looks like all the usual bureaucratic hurdles have been wiped away. We understand uh, that uh, state-supported political parties, trade unions, and other organizations have very quickly received their permission to hold uh, protests. In Egypt, since uh, Sisi came to power 10 years ago, it's been strictly forbidden. Any sort of unauthorized protest is strictly forbidden and oftentimes Uh, brutally suppressed by the security forces. But in this instance, it looks like it's a go-ahead. Now, he said when meeting with Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor yesterday in Cairo, uh, that you will see millions of Egyptians come out in support of the Egyptian position. And it's important to stress what exactly is the Egyptian position. The Egyptians have been adamantly opposed to any idea of Palestinians from Gaza coming into Egypt. You have to remember that there is a deep feeling that when Palestinians are forced or flee from their homes by the Israelis, oftentimes they're never allowed back. So this is really a red line uh, for the Egyptians. And of course, these protests will be also an opportunity for the Egyptians to show their support for President Sisi's position. Keep in mind, however, that there's always a worry in Egypt when you have a large group of people out demonstrating some might step outside the bounds placed by uh, the government and perhaps stress some unhappiness with the rule of President Sisi himself. But we expect, by and large, many people to come out in the streets of Egypt to protest tomorrow. Jake?
1: Maybe they'll remind people that the blockade against Gaza is not only Israel's, it's Egypt's. Ben Wiedemann in southern Lebanon, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Breaking news now from the Pentagon. U.S. officials say a U.S. Navy destroyer operating in the Middle East has shot down multiple missiles and drones off the coast of Yemen. The Pentagon is not sure exactly where those missiles or drones were headed, but says it was, quote, potentially toward targets in Israel. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman. Oren, what are you hearing from Pentagon officials?
4: Jake, we now understand the USS Kearney, a Navy destroyer, was operating in the the Red Sea, having just passed south through the Suez Canal, when it intercepted three cruise missiles and several drones, according to U.S. officials, which the Pentagon confirmed just a short time ago. According to the Pentagon... It was Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen who launched this attack, and it wasn't targeting the destroyer itself. Instead, the Pentagon says it was heading north along the Red Sea towards Israel, though they don't say definitively that that was the target of the attack. The Pentagon insists that the U.S. will continue to act in this way if it sees others trying to get involved in this war in any way, and that it will continue to defend both itself, U.S. interests, and its partners. Worth noting, this isn't the only hot spot right now outside of Gaza in the Middle East. There have been a series of drone attacks on U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq. Both two days ago, there were several drone attacks, one of which caused uh, minor injuries to coalition forces. And a second series of attacks yesterday also caused minor injuries, the Pentagon noting that during one of the alarms because of a suspected threat, a U.S. contractor had a cardiac episode and died as a result of that. So this is what the Pentagon and the Biden administration are trying to watch very closely to try to prevent this from becoming a regional conflict. Even as you see protests across the Middle East directed at both the U.S. and Israel, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin held a number of calls with both his Israeli counterpart and Arab leaders, first saying that Israel, that the U.S. would continue to back Israel, but also defending and ensuring that uh, the safeguarding of civilian lives was important for everybody here, Jake. But obviously, a very tense situation as the conflict certainly looks like it's headed towards a regional expansion.
1: All right, Orton Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Devastating news today about two of the hostages kidnapped by Hamas, an 80-year-old Israeli-American woman and her teenage granddaughter were killed. Their bodies were found. I'm going to talk with their cousin next. Stay with us. We have a a terrible update for you right now on five family members who were all kidnapped by Hamas uh, 12 days ago from their home. They were kidnapped, uh, obviously, October 7th in Oz. That's a kibbutz in southern Israel, just a few miles from the border with Gaza. Um, You might remember we talked uh, to one of their relatives, Abion, two Mondays ago, Um, And sadly, the bodies of two of the five, Uh, Abby's cousin, 80-year-old Carmela Don, an Israeli-American, and Carmela's granddaughter, 13-year-old Noya Calderon, their bodies were just found. They were killed. There's still no word on the three other Israeli citizens from the family that are missing, Carmela's son-in-law and Noya's father, Ofer Calderon, and Noya's siblings, Sa'ar and Erez. Uh, Joining us now is Abby Own um, back with us. And Abby, I mean, you know, when we do these interviews, we always obviously hope that you'll come back with great news. And um, that's not the case with at least two of the five. And I'm so sorry. Um, I'm so sorry about the loss of your cousin, Carmela, and, and her granddaughter, Noya. It's a, it's a stupid question. Thank you. It's a stupid question. But how are you doing? How's the rest of the family doing? Um, you're hearing this um, awful news. And then you also are worried about Ofer and Sahar and Eris.
5: You know, we celebrated Carmela's 80th birthday on Tuesday. We got together as a family to hug each other and to bring each other strength. And we blessed her, believing that she heard us, thinking that she was alive. You know, the last messages they sent to one another, they were saying goodbye to each other. Her daughters were saying goodbye. They feared that they wouldn't make it. And Carmela was the one to say to them, don't say goodbye. Stay strong. We're going to survive this. And I think those messages created hope for us that she was alive and well. And for us now, I can't imagine that the the nightmare got worse, but it did. We not only now have two of them that have been murdered by Hamas, but we are still fighting for three of them. There are so many Israelis in the last 12 days that have lost people, have people missing, have people serving or, or killed. And we can't grieve in peace because we have to continue to
1: fight. How do you feel about how the Israeli government has responded to the terrorist attack on October 7th so far?
5: I feel from the point of view of some of the family members missing, that isolated, it took a very long time for the families to hear. It took almost nine days for to get confirmation of them being kidnapped and then to find out two days after that, that Karbala and Noya had been murdered. But as someone with a, a larger understanding of what the country is dealing with, I understand the massive dilemma and the massive challenge they're facing. The numbers now are looking like 16 or 1700 people murdered by Hamas and to catalog and identify that number of bodies. I don't know any government or anyone that would be ready for something like that.
1: Yeah. When um, President Biden was in Tel Aviv yesterday, he he met with some of the families. Uh, he had a lot of messages for the people of Israel, including that the U.S. stands firmly with Israel. Um, one of the other things he, he said was that one of the lessons from 9-11, and I know that Proportionally, this is much worse than nine eleven. Proportionally, this is like yes. forty thousand people killed in Israel in terms of how how big your country is versus how big our country is. Correct. But he said one of the lessons for nine eleven is for for you to learn from, for Israel to learn from is don't be consumed by rage. Um, and I know that's got to be a difficult message to hear. But I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder how that landed with you.
5: It lands with me because for the first time in 12 days, I sat with my children this morning and I explained to them that we lost people, that they were dead and no longer hostages. And we had to finally explain to them that we were at war and that people infiltrated our border to murder and brutalize citizens here. And that two of our family members were dead and they asked so many questions, but why would someone do that? But why, why take them or why kill them? And at the end of the conversation, we said to them, we don't hate anyone. We are not dealing with rage right now. We are dealing with hope and we're fighting. And I believe that's the only choice right now and the only thing that we can tell our children.
1: What do you want, what do you want us to know about your loved ones who you lost? I think I saw an image of your cousin's granddaughter and she was a, a fan of Harry Potter. What, 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 should, was. what should we remember? What if there's one thing we should, we should take away and just remember forever from this interview? What do you want us to remember about your cousin and her granddaughter?
5: Carmela was in the worst moments, the strongest person we knew. And Noya in her love of Harry Potter believed in magic. And I have to believe the combination of strength and magic, and the fact that they had the strongest of relationships until the end gives us some solace knowing that they're together in this, but that what Biden also said in his speech and in his visit, that we have to stand against terror, that we have to fight for the civilians that are still being held hostage, and that we have to use our voices, whether that means speaking to elected officials, demanding that this remains the top priority. This is what we want.
1: Abby, I'm so sorry. Thank you. We're all so sorry. We're all so sorry. We're may, still fighting. May Carmela and Noyes, may their memory be a blessing. We will remember- Thank Carmela's strength and we will remember Noya's love of magic and her belief in magic.
5: Thank you so much.
1: We'll be right back.
0: We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.
1: the aid package that President Biden is going to pitch to the American people tonight cannot cannot actually pass Congress because there is not a House Speaker. And right now on Capitol Hill, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan and his effort to bully his way into the House Speaker's chamber has run into the reality that he doesn't have the votes. But that does not mean that he's giving up. Not having the votes has never stopped Mr. Jordan before. Remember, he didn't give up when Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. He was a major player in the conspiracy to overturn the will of the people and keep Trump in office. Nor are his supporters giving up, some of them even going so far as to threaten Republicans and their spouses if those Republicans voted against Jordan's grab for the Speaker's gavel. Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks of Iowa said in a statement that she has, quote, received credible death threats and a barrage of threatening calls after flipping her Speaker vote from Jordan on Tuesday for House Appropriations Chairwoman Kay Granger on Wednesday. Congressman Steve Womack of Arkansas said his office has been flooded with calls and there's been, quote, lots of profanity. And Nebraska Congressman Don Bacon's wife received menacing text messages. Jordan on X, formerly known as Twitter, has come out and said, quote, no American should accost another for their beliefs. We condemn all threats against our colleagues and it is imperative that we come together. Stop. It's abhorrent. He said that yesterday, last night. Of course, the campaign to pressure people was announced on, I think, Saturday night or Sunday morning. He came out yesterday. CNN's Melanie Zenona's on Capitol Hill. Melanie, after all of this, somehow, for some reason, Congressman Jordan announced that he's going to hold a third vote for speaker. He's still trying.
6: Yeah, well, Jim Jordan's new plan is actually the same as his old plan, which is he's going to try to win over his opposition and potentially fight this thing out on the floor, even though it's clear he is nowhere near having the votes it's going to take to become speaker. Actually, initially, earlier today, he initially rallied around a resolution that would have temporarily empowered interim speaker Patrick McHenry. This was an idea that in his mind could have given him more time to try to build support, rally around his candidacy, and, you know, take away the chaos of a Speakerless House. But he quickly abandoned that plan when he got blowback from his own conservative supporters about that idea during a closed-door meeting. We caught up with him after that meeting. Here's what he had to say.
7: I'm still running for Speaker and I plan to go to the floor uh, and get the votes and win this race. But I want to go talk with a, a few of my colleagues, particularly I want to talk with the 20 individuals who voted against me. Um, so that we can move forward and begin to work for the American people.
6: Now, Jordan is currently huddled with some of those holdouts in a meeting right behind me. Kevin McCarthy, former speaker, is also in there, as well as Patrick McHenry. But just to give you a sense of the uphill climb he is facing, I am told, Jake, that some of the holdouts are refusing to meet with him or even take Jim Jordan's calls. And one of the reasons why they are so upset is because of those death threats that you mentioned. A number of these holdouts are getting angry calls, menacing messages, death threats. I'm told that one of those members who voted against Jim Jordan had to have a sheriff, stationed at his daughter's school because of these threats that this person is getting. So just to give you a flavor of how tense things are inside the Republican Party today, there was also a conference meeting earlier where we're told there was some screaming, there was some profanity-laced rants against one another. So. Republicans are really scrambling right now to come up with a solution. At this point, Jake, though, no consensus, no speaker, and no ability to govern.
1: This pressure campaign was announced over the weekend. He didn't say anything publicly to call off the dogs until last night, Melanie.
6: And that is why some members are so upset, because they said he could have done way more to try to stand these conservative attacks down. Remember, some of these conservative media figures and leaders were posting office numbers and encouraging people to go after these members and let them know how they feel. So that is why there is so much emotion right now and why the feelings are so raw inside the Republican conference, Mm. Jake.
1: If only there was something in his background that would suggest he would stand by and look away when bad things were going on. CNN's uh, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. CNN's uh, Jamie Gangel uh, is here uh, and uh, has been working her sources. She joins me now. What are you hearing about the House Speaker fight?
8: Well, first of all, I just want to say this dysfunction has now become death threats. We've been sitting here for 13 days now. This is just extraordinary. But, but let me suggest this. Different people have different agendas. And Melanie talked about Kevin McCarthy being in that meeting. I want to show you two pictures. One is that I'm told by my sources that Kevin McCarthy's office wouldn't let them take his name off the Speaker's door. I think we have a picture of it. It's still right up there.
1: He's not the Speaker of the
8: House, He is not the Speaker of the House. Number two, if you look on the official website...
1: Why does he want that on?
8: If you look on the official website... Uh, for House.gov, Kevin McCarthy is still listed as Speaker of the House. Is that even legal? So, bottom line, I don't, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Bottom line, uh, as long as there isn't a Speaker, okay. even though Patrick McHenry is Speaker pro tem, right. Kevin McCarthy is using that office, I would argue he is still in charge. And I'm told that his team is supposedly helping Jim Jordan with this great strategy going toward a third vote where we're told the numbers are likely to get worse for Jim Jordan. I'm not sure that Kevin McCarthy is acting in Jim Jordan's best interest. It seems my sources say they think he's just holding on to this, the, uh, the sign and the listing in House.gov. And we've
1: also heard Congressman Tom Massey said something earlier today about how he didn't think Congressman Steve Scalise was acting in Jim Jordan's best interest. So, I mean, you have a lot of people here that are not helping Jim Jordan. Right now, in this closed-door meeting, I've been told that some of these holdouts are telling Jim Jordan it's over. We'll see if Jim Jordan is even capable of hearing that. I'm not quite sure that he is
8: correct and and Melanie reported I think it was yesterday that the the opponents to Jim Jordan were actually keeping no votes in their
1: back pocket make it look like it was going to get worse and worse and worse exactly that he was a rodent correct oh boy all right Jamie Gingell thanks so much coming up a surprise guilty plea in the Georgia election subversion case that could have a big impact on Donald Trump and that story's next A major development in Donald Trump's legal troubles today requires us to take a step back in time. Let's go back to mid-November 2020. Trump's attorney, Sidney Powell, promised she would produce vast troves of non-existent proof that Trump won the election. I'm going to release the Kraken, she said in a reference to Clash of the Titans on Fox Business, to no pushback. No Kraken was ever produced because no Kraken exists and the Krakenless Ms. Powell today pleaded guilty in the election subversion case in Fulton County, Georgia. As CNN's Paula Reed reports for us now. Powell's plea could impact Donald Trump and the other Krakenless co defendants.
5: How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of
9: election duties? Guilty former trump attorney sydney powell appeared in a georgia courtroom this morning the second person to plead guilty in the sprawling case over efforts to overturn the 2020 election in that state do you understand that by pleading guilty you are giving up the right to a trial by jury yes As part of the deal, Powell will admit her role in the January 2021 breach of voting systems in rural Coffee County, Georgia, be required to write an apology letter to the citizens of the state, and pay nearly $9,000 in restitution and fines, as well as turnover documents. But she is not expected to face jail time. Prosecutors are recommending a sentence of six years probation one name that did not come up at thursday's hearing her co-defendant donald trump the deal is the first by a member of his inner circle
2: i'm going to release the kraken
9: powell was among the most vocal of his lawyers in pushing outlandish claims about the election including that millions of votes were flipped in a global scheme against trump
2: there should never be another election conducted in this country i don't care if it's for local dog catcher Using a Dominion machine. Repeating those conspiracy theories eventually
9: proved too much even for Trump, and she was ousted from his team. And her plea raises new questions about a deal in the federal election subversion case. Trump is the only individual charged in that indictment, but Powell has been identified by CNN as one of the six co conspirators listed by special counsel Jack Smith, who has signaled other people could be charged.
10: The Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day.
9: That federal trial is scheduled to begin in March, and it's unclear if anyone else will be charged in this case or if Powell would even be interested in a deal with federal prosecutors. But Jake, to give you a sense of just how quickly something like this can come about, We've learned that this deal was arranged in about the last 24 hours. Oh,
1: interesting. Paul, stick with us. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Michael Moore, a former uh, U.S. attorney uh, in Georgia. I want to play what Sidney Powell said, again, just because it's fun, Uh, just days after the 22 election.
2: We are not going to be intimidated. We are not going to back down. We are going to clean this mess up now. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it. And we are going to reclaim the United States of America for the people who vote for freedom.
1: Okay, so that's not true. All of that's lies. Mm -hmm. And that video was tweeted by the Republican National Committee. That tweet is still up. Mm -hmm. I just checked. It's still up at the RNC. Um, She was spreading lies many Americans still believe. What is the significance of her pleading guilty?
11: Well, I'm glad to be with you. Having a plea in a criminal case is always a big deal for the prosecutor, and it's really one of the biggest weapons they have because it helps people uh, decide to cooperate and tell the truth about other co-defendants. And so here, remember that her conduct is really pretty limited in the Georgia indictment. It dealt with the Coffee County case and whether or not there was access to the voting machines. So I don't know from the grand scheme of things that this is – the, the kind of thing that's going to be the silver bullet to take down the uh, Trump. The big lie. But, right. but you just heard her identified as the inner, inner circle. This is the first of the inner circle that Paul reported on. And, and what's interesting here is that it's sort of a little bit anticlimactic to see a plea to a misdemeanor in a case that's been touted as the largest you know, election case in history. And they had all the ceremony of bringing people in and having them turn themselves in at the jail uh, and then to come away with a misdemeanor. And if she completes a probation, that means that essentially she has no record at all. Uh, and that means she can still vote. She's not a convicted felon. And despite the fact that this is an election case, so I, I you know, I, we'll see what the prosecutors have gotten out of her. And I know that she's got to cooperate. She's got to tell the truth as she goes forward, not a really big ax to hang over her head. I think the bigger question is going to be, what does she do for Jack Smith in the case? I think this is one that, you know, is, is sort of maybe useful. It may be not as it comes to Trump in Georgia.
1: So Paula, um, her deal includes six years probation, testify at future trials, apology letter to Georgia citizens, $9,000 in restitution fines, turns over documents. She was facing seven charges, including violations of Georgia Racketeering Act, conspiracy to commit election fraud. Um, is it surprising she isn't facing jail time here? It does seem like this is a slap on the wrist.
9: It is a slap on the wrist, but that's what you get when you are second in line and agree to plea, right? This is good for prosecutors. It's great for her, but ultimately it is giving prosecutors the ability to claim a win. This is the first member of Trump's now former inner circle to agree to plea. So this is something that they would absolutely want as opposed to having to put on a trial for five months, this complicated RICO case. have been watching the hearings, it's it's not clear how successful they're going to be in this first this first trial. So for prosecutors, it's a win. And what does she get in return? A slap on the wrist.
1: Interesting. What does this mean for Donald Trump, if anything, Michael? Well, I mean, it's it, it
11: starting to chip away at the wall that he builds around himself. I mean, that's what he's known for, sort of putting somebody between him and the jailhouse or him and the guilty verdict or the, the judgment. Um, so it's, it is it is a little bit, I think, probably psychological as it, it goes from there. but. Um, I don't know what it will mean in the, in the state case against him. I don't think there will be a whole lot of testimony that she has to offer. But I think in the federal case, she might give more information about what happened in those interior meetings mm-hmm. at the White House. And I think that's where it's going to be
1: important. Interesting. Paula Reed, Michael Moore, thanks to both of you. New intelligence and new estimates of how many people were killed in that blast outside the hospital in Gaza, the one that President Biden says was actually the responsibility of the Palestinians. That story next. We're back, and in addition to the conclusion of U.S. intelligence that it was a misfired Palestinian rocket, not the Israelis, that caused the explosion at the Gaza hospital on Tuesday, CNN just got its hands on unclassified U.S. intelligence that shows that the hospital blast in Gaza killed somewhere between 100 and 300 people, which contradicts the initial Palestinian health officials' claims that 471 people were killed. A reminder that the Palestinian health ministry is controlled by Hamas. CNN's Alex Marquardt is
12: here at the Magic Wall to walk
1: us through the latest evidence. Alex?
12: Well, Jake, this is, of course, a a horrific strike. We've now seen the unclassified intelligence assessment that was put out by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence about the strike at Ahli Baptist Hospital. This is some of what went into this assessment. It's an analysis that echoes, as you said, what Israel has said, that Israel is not responsible. And they base that on several different intelligence streams, and they say that some Palestinian militants inside Gaza do suspect that it was the militant group Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and that a rocket from inside Gaza caused limited structural damage, but did kill hundreds of people. The Israeli military has also argued that the damage uh, that was done on the ground is not consistent with airstrikes from the Israeli Air Force. They also claim to have intercepted calls between Hamas operatives, which they say talk about a misfire from Islamic Jihad. Now we've heard those calls, we cannot verify them. So what do we know now? What have we seen? This is the area that we're talking about, Northern Gaza right here. This is the hospital here in the middle of Northern Gaza. Remember, Israel told everyone to leave the North and head to the South, but so many Palestinians can't, or they don't want to because they have seen what the Gazans in the South are going through and that they are not faring very well. Now, I wanna show you some of the video that we have. This is the most dramatic video of the explosion that we have seen. Take a listen. You hear that loud whoosh followed by that massive explosion. We have geolocated the site of that blast to the hospital. But from this clip and from this sound, experts tell us that we can't glean too much about what that projectile is except that it caused that huge explosion. This is another piece of video. It is a key piece of evidence. Just before 7 p.m., Al Jazeera News caught this on an east-facing camera. You can see that light in the sky. We've determined that this is a rocket that was fired from the ground south of Gaza City, then exploding high above Gaza City. CNN military analyst Cedric Layton says, this is consistent with a malfunctioning rocket. And then just around six seconds later, an explosion was seen on the ground. The camera is going to pan down right there. We can't say that that rocket in the sky is related to that explosion on the ground, but we have geolocated, again, that explosion to the site of the hospital in Gaza City. Now, eyewitnesses have described bodies and parts of bodies strewn all over the strike site. The health ministry, which is controlled by Hamas, claims that almost 500 Gazans were killed. The new US intelligence assessment today says that that number is lower, closer to 1 to 300. They still call it a staggering death toll. And then there was this extraordinary press conference. Doctors at the hospital surrounded, as you can see here, by the dead and the injured. We've seen all kinds of charred vehicles strewn across the parking lot at the hospital. We have seen damage to the buildings. You can see these windows have been blown out, but nothing that we have seen has been leveled. We've seen belongings everywhere, blood on the ground, but experts who have looked at this damage say, this does not look like an Israeli airstrike. We also have this new video exclusive just into CNN. We're showing it to you for the first time of this crater in the parking lot, which appears to be where the projectile struck. It is, as you can see, relatively small and again, Experts say that a crater this size is not what you would see after a missile strike from a jet or from a drone. It could say, they say, it could be rather from a smaller rocket. And then we have these satellite images before the strike and after the strike. You can see here the parking lot at the hospital before and here the parking lot after, which has been blackened. And you can see some of those vehicles in the middle of the parking lot. It shows the limited structural damage and the lack of a major crater. There's nothing on these satellite images pointing to a crater from an airstrike. Since those horrific attacks by Hamas in Israel on October 7th, we've seen thousands of Israeli airstrikes all across the Gaza Strip. And this is what they normally look like, flattened buildings, huge craters. So could Israel have used a smaller munition, perhaps an artillery shell, at the hospital? Experts say that is not outside the realm of possibility. But as the U.S. and Israel are saying, it is unlikely, given what else we've seen and what else we know. So altogether, CNN has reviewed dozens of videos posted on social media that aired on live broadcasts and filmed by a freelance journalist working in Gaza, which showed the blast and its aftermath. A thorough CNN analysis of that footage suggests that the devastating explosion was not the result of an Israeli airstrike. And several weapons experts say that the visual evidence points to the possibility that it was caused by a rocket. Now, Jake, this doesn't prove the assertions made by Israeli and U.S. intelligence, but it is consistent with their claims that, that the explosion was due to a local rocket misfire. Jake.
1: All right. Very thorough. Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. We are following two major stories on the lead. President Biden is preparing to deliver in prime time an Oval Office address tonight as Republicans on Capitol Hill are behind closed doors right now battling it out over the speakership or lack thereof. We've got all of the latest developments. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And leading this hour, President Biden will address the nation from the Oval Office this evening for the only second time in his presidency. He's going to try to convince Americans why it is critical to provide tens of billions of dollars to support two allies in their two wars israel and ukraine Uh, perhaps a glimmer of hope for the civilians stuck in gaza right now egyptian security officials tell cnn they're preparing to try to open the Rafah border crossing friday morning allowing trucks with much needed water food and fuel as well as medicine to enter but a un source is telling cnn uh, that they are afraid that convoy might not be allowed to go in on friday and israeli forces are also seemingly poised to enter Gaza with the Israeli defense minister in a statement today saying that his troops will soon see Gaza, quote, from the inside. This as airstrikes in Gaza continue with desperate scenes of the wounded rush to a hospital in the Khan Yunus neighborhood of Gaza. But that is not the only front in that war. The Israeli defense forces say 20 rockets were launched toward Israel from Lebanon today. And Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Lebanese group that the U.S. classifies as terrorist, claims it targeted five Israeli military posts along the Lebanese-Israeli border. President Biden in Israel yesterday warned Prime Minister Netanyahu to consider the lessons learned by the U.S. after 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan and to not let rage consume the Israeli people as the ground incursion into Gaza appears to draw closer. This is a similar warning we heard voiced by former CIA director and General David Petraeus here on The Lead earlier this week.
10: This can't be another case where you mow the lawn all the way down to the dirt in this case, but then you pull back out and the remnants will be able to reconstitute themselves. So what follows? Could there be an interim
1: international authority? What is it?: Those critical questions, what are Israel's next moves, and are they ready for what comes after the Israeli defense forces destroy Hamas, assuming the IDF succeeds? Let's start with my fellow anchor and friend Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, Aaron. President Biden set to deliver this Oval Office address tonight on the crisis and getting aid into yeah. Gaza to help the innocent Palestinians, that's a high priority for him.
13: An incredibly high priority. And, Jake, I'm mean, the latest we have is from Mark Regev, of course, you know who you know uh, well as well, uh, longtime advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, saying, my understanding is that we'll have movement tomorrow. He was referring to the Rafah border crossing uh, and whether that those 20 trucks that are waiting, of course. Um, maybe movement tomorrow, but we've been hearing that every day. So it's fair to say that people here uh, treat that with a huge degree of skepticism. Talking to someone in Gaza tonight, an American actually, a retired American art teacher among the many Americans who are there, uh, Jake, telling us the conditions, uh, that she feels like it's the end of the world. The smell of death is everywhere. Uh, I'm scared when the night comes, but I'm scared also in the day. They don't have medicine. She's talking about basic things like the incredibly foul smell of the toilets because there's no water to even flush uh, and not being able to get crucial high blood pressure medicines. This is what they're dealing with, no matter who you are in Gaza. So the humanitarian situation is dire. Uh, We'll see if Regev is correct. uh, That requires uh, the Egyptians as well. Uh, But you do at least have the Israelis tonight saying their understanding is that that will come tomorrow.
1: And you spoke with a, a group of Israelis today who fought off a Hamas attack at a kibbutz. Tell us about that.
13: So, Jake, you know, amidst all the stories of horror and anguish that we have, that we have shared, this is a story of, well, they, they managed to have this be the kibbutz that was attacked, Mephalsim, that did not have any death. It's an absolutely incredible story. In fact, Jake, I had the, the war plans. They were taken off of Hamas soldiers. So I was with these four men who had served in the security for their kibbutz, Mefalsim. And we were going through the war plans. They're reading them. They're saying, how did these guys know the generator was here? They're saying, how do the guys even know where these, these cameras are? We don't even know where these cameras are. They, they were they were astounded by the level of, of, of detail and, and the military accuracy in the Hamas plans to attack their kibbutz. And here's just one brief thing that happened during the
3: attack. So WhatsApp message from Didi telling me they are adding to your point from the field. A few seconds and they will be there. An unbelievable message, really. Yeah. mind Maybe
13: saved everything.
3: I just ran to the window,
13: yeah.
3: and I just saw this nightmare in front of my eyes. I pick up truck and another two motorcycles, about 13 or 14 combatants, trying, starting to jump out of the car about 80 to 100 meters from my house, outside the fence. And what do you do? I was freezing for the first second,
13: mm-hmm. actually.
3: Yeah. And then Didi started shooting after his first bullet, which was a very good wake-up call. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started shooting.
13: Take 260 rounds he fired. Um, they were talking about the magazines and how they went through them again and again and again. Their story is one of incredible success. No one died in their kibbutz. Obviously, just a couple miles away, uh, you had hundreds of people die uh, in each of those kibbutzes. So their story, uh, they, are, they are incredibly grateful. When they finally left the kibbutz, uh, deep dark, in the darkness, at 2 a.m. the next morning, Driving down the road, they are driving very fast with the lights on, the way the Israeli military told them to drive, Jake, because they're still worried they're going to be attacked. And their lights are illuminating scores of dead bodies of people who had been fleeing the festival to try to get into the kibbutz for refuge. And the terrorists were waiting outside and picking them off like flies. And they're driving, dodging them, they say, in what was one of the sickest video game-like experiences they've they've ever had. So we'll, we'll have their full story tonight.
1: All right, Aaron Burnett out front at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you again. Let's go now to CNN's Nick Robertson, who is just outside Gaza in Stirot Israel. And Nick, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Galant, says troops, Israeli troops will, quote, soon see Gaza from the inside. Are you seeing any movement uh, of Israeli forces? So much movement over the past few days
14: and so many troops getting last minute training inside small villages, uh, reconstructed villages that look like Palestinian villages and towns with mosques, with stores, with houses, uh, training to form up in lines, uh, form their vehicles up in lines for when they get that order to go. But I think perhaps today, really from the politicians, it's the clearest sign yet that we're getting close. Um, One minister I spoke to today said the politicians have given a green light to the military. It is all in the hands of the military now when they choose to go in. In Israel's war with Hamas, more than 60 of the terror group's operatives arrested early Thursday in the West Bank. The clock now ticking on a far more dangerous phase of the war for the IDF, going into Hamas's heartland. Gaza. The Israeli
11: government made a decision, gave green light to the army, wiped them out. And now it's in the hands of the army.
14: Israeli politicians are preparing expectations for a long war. And for the first time, hinting at what an end of war may look like.
15: The Gulf trip all along will have a margin that they will not be able to get in. It will be a fire zone. No matter who who are you, you'll never be able to come close to the Israeli border.
14: As Dichter, a former head of Israeli security, says what Israel wants is the level of security control they currently have in the West Bank. Complete access on their terms.
15: Today, whenever we have a, a military problem, in every single place in the West Bank, we are there. So that's what you have in Gaza going forward? In Gaza in terms of security. Remember that in Gaza Strip, once there's no Administration, it has to be built another administration.
14: But as these plans take shape and troops prepare to go into Gaza, airstrikes are triggering international calls for a humanitarian pause to ease civilian suffering. Dichter rejects the need for a pause. We don't activate against civilians. But there are civilians' collateral
15: damage. In a war, in a war, in a war, a la comme la guerre. In a war, we do understand and unfortunately we have suffered.
14: With or without a pause in strikes, 20 trucks loaded with humanitarian aid are expected to enter Gaza from Egypt soon against the scale of need. It's a token ahead of a possible ground incursion, maybe all that gets through for a while. Well, the UN Secretary General has been in Egypt today, not too far from the Rafah border crossing. And he says, absolutely, there should be a humanitarian pause. His bargain, if you will, that he's calling for is for Israel to let humanitarian supplies go in and Hamas to release all the hostages. Uh, There's no indication that that is a bargain that's about to be struck. I think it's all eyes on these 20 trucks to see if they get in, Jake.
1: Yeah, I mean, they've already killed hostages. Nick Robertson, just outside Gaza, thank you so much. Uh, Former Israeli National Security Advisor to Prime Ministers Bennett and Lapid, Eyal Hulada, uh, joins us now to discuss. Thanks so much for being here. So historically speaking, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has he been willing to jump into these high-risk military operations like this one that it looks like Israeli forces are about to do? This is is high risk to send ground forces into Gaza. I mean, Hamas had to have known that that's what they were going to do, so they have to be prepared. This is really dangerous stuff, Um, or is he typically, Netanyahu, despite his bluster, is he typically more cautious?
16: Right. So, you know, first, I mean, Netanyahu has been prime minister for so long. Of course, uh, uh, there were events uh, during his time as well. Protective Edge in 2014, Netanyahu was prime minister. Uh, And Israel went into Gaza uh, uh, with a uh, 40-day campaign. We didn't call it a war, even though it was for uh, uh, 50, 50 days. Uh, it's true that the last uh, campaign that Israel calls a war, second Lebanese war, was in 2006 and uh, in, um, it was prime minister in the in north, north, in yeah. Lebanon. It's true. I mean, Netanyahu is, is known to be uh, a security guy, but also very risk averse. I think at this point, there's just no other choice. I mean, the, the, the magnitude of, 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 of brutality is uh, so enormous and, and the sentiment and the consensus in the Israeli com- uh, uh, community society is so large. Uh, uh, I, think th- I think there's no other way but uh, uh, to fulfill the, the goals that he put and his cabinet put to this war, and that is to get rid of Hamas as a rule of Gaza.
1: You call him Mr. Security, or, or that's, well, what, that's, yeah. that's how he paints himself. But I've heard from a lot. I know there's a lot of support for him right now because of what happened, and people want Hamas destroyed, eliminated. But I've also heard from a lot of Israelis who are wondering about that Mr. Security label because of what happened October 7th. Where was the IDF? Where was the protection? Why did it take so long yep. to get there? I know people say that's, those are questions for later, and I understand that. But those are some troubling questions.
16: There are. And, uh, you know, I think they go uh, uh, from the IDF and all the way to the top. Uh, I was National Security Advisor. The responsibilities of a prime minister are very, very clear. The, the, the responsibilities of the cabinet are very, very clear. And, of course, there is responsibility on the security establishment on the IDF on the ShinBet and on all, all of them head of the IDF, went to the public and said that he takes responsibility. And so did head of Shin Bet, and so did head of military intelligence. And it's quite clear in Israel, it's very simple. And I think Netanyahu knows that very, very well. The responsibility goes all the way to the top. This will be dealt later, but I think the uh, society of Israel is looking for leadership. Do you
1: think there is going to be pressure from President Biden, from Western leaders, people who are standing shoulder to shoulder with Israel and with Netanyahu now, Once Israeli forces go into Gaza, and I'm assuming that is going to happen, um, and the war gets bloody, even bloodier than it is now, Um, and Israeli forces start being killed, because we've had generals on this show compare this to what the U.S. faced in Fallujah, except that the U.S. was facing former Iraqi soldiers in Fallujah, and these are Hamas terrorists. They're not going to even abide by normal... Rules of warfare.
16: Yeah. Uh, they don't abide by uh, rules of lawfare and they also don't abide by the truth. I just saw what uh, in the in the end of the previous piece Alex presented here very thoroughly uh, uh, the evidence the CNN has also that's just collected. That's public evidence. Yeah, that's public evidence. You know, I mean, it, it calls for two things. One is maybe you can put trust in the Israeli and American administration that say, based on intel, that yeah. this was them who did it. But the other thing is they lied deliberately to the international community, to the international media, they will sabotage any story, they will spin everything just to make us look bad. And you're right, this is what we're facing. And I think it's important that you know the, the international community and the international media and public understands what Israel is facing. Everything we will do, we will get blamed on. Even things we don't do, we get blamed on. And I truly hope that we will continue to get the international support that we are getting. President Biden went out of his way to put the support of the Israeli people, making them understand that he has our back, because I think President Biden understands this is a different story. European Parliament said that. The EU leadership said that. Hamas must be eradicated and removed from leadership of Gaza. They lost their legitimacy to rule their own people. Israel needs to make this happen, I hope. This is one of the reasons I'm speaking also here. I think it's very, very important the audience understands we will need international support because this will be bloody.
1: Al-Hulada, please come back. Uh, We'd love to talk more to you. Thank you. Back here in Washington, the speaker fight Is getting even uglier. We're going to show you right now. You're looking live at the hallway outside the room where Congressman Jim Jordan is meeting right now with some of the Republicans who oppose his bid to be Speaker. Has he changed any of their minds? I think I know. But let's find out from them. That's next. Live pictures now of where the chaos is unfolding on Capitol Hill, at least in the room where it happened. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, aspiring Speaker Jim Jordan, meeting there behind closed doors right there, trying to win over some Republican holdouts. They oppose his bid to be Speaker. His party infighting has taken a dramatic and ugly turn. Several of those lawmakers who opposed Jim Jordan's bid for Speaker are now receiving credible and terrifying death threats. Over the weekend, it was made clear that supporters of Jordan's were going to launch a pressure campaign that apparently had Jordan's blessing until last night in the intervening time, well, it got pretty ugly. And we have some exclusive audio right now of a threatening message that was left as a voicemail for the wife of one of the Republican lawmakers who opposes Jordan. This has only been edited to take out identifying information of the wife and the lawmaker. We've bleeped out some of the language, but not all of it. And I want to warn you, this is pretty ugly stuff. Take a listen.
7: Why is your husband such a pig? Why would he get on TV and make an asshole of himself? Because he's a deep state prick? Because he doesn't represent the people? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to come follow you all over the place. We're going to be up your ass. F***ing nonstop. We are now Antifa. We're going to do what the left does because your f-ing, f***ing of a husband gets on TV and says, Oh, the bad guy's David, so I'm going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, a piece of shit who everybody knows. And for his piece of shit ass talk about Americans who are actually fighting for Americans as the bad people, says everything about him. So fuck you. Fuck your husband. And we are going to, we, we're not like the left. We aren't violent, but we're going to follow your ass. Every appointment you have, everything you can do. Your your husband's an asshole. You should f-ing talk to his stupid ass. We're at war. Israelis being killed, and your dumb husband is acting like a two year old. No wonder he's a war mongering piece of shit. So listen, you're going to keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information over the internet now. Everybody else's, and you will not be left alone because your f-ing, f-ing husband, Jim Jordan, or more conservative. Or you're going to be f- molested like you can't ever imagine. And again, nonviolently, you won't go to the beauty parlor. And you must be a bitch to marry an f- ugly mother f- like that.
1: With me now to discuss Republican uh, Congressman Mike McCall from Texas. He's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that's disgusting. Yeah. That is disgusting. <laughs> The pressure campaign for Jordan was announced over the weekend. Calls like that started happening immediately. Jordan didn't denounce it until last night. What is going on in your party?
10: Well, this shows you the uh, level of political discourse in this country now.
1: No, in your party, Uh, sir, in your party.
10: I I think it's despicable. Um, And I wouldn't say Jordan is responsible for all that, but there is this faction that has just hatred that you heard on that phone call. That was uh, Congressman Don Bacon, and his wife. Uh, no member deserves that kind of treatment from any constituent. Uh, and I, quite frankly, Jake, worry about the safety of members back home, the ones that maybe didn't support Jordan uh, having these, these uh, sort of threats uh, back home in their districts. I, I, I remember Gabby Giffords very well when she was shot in the head and, and barely survived very concerned about about the safety of members, not only back home but up here um, this is if this is the level of my party uh, I think it 's in the gutter, and we need to get out of the gutter
1: right now so this is one of the reasons why there are more than twenty people voting against Jim Jordan. Is there not anyone in your party that 217 people can rally around i mean i look at your party and i see people that seem to be conservative who seem mm-hmm. to be agreeable to the idea of mm-hmm. having individual appropriations bills which is important to the matt Gateses, uh right. who have you know who seem to be fiscal conservatives which is important to to that wing and yet i don't know that they can get 217 i'm talking about the tom coles the tom emmers the steve Womack's, maybe even michael mccall what about you? Have you why won't you put your name forward
10: well, well I, I'm not sure I want to go on a suicide mission, Jake. But I appreciate your endorsement. But uh, I do think we have better—we have good candidates uh, that could run. I think the hard thing is getting to 217 with such a small, a razor-thin majority. Uh, when you know you have to—you you can't lose more than four or five members uh, uh, to win this thing. And that's—it's paralyzing. Not only my party, but it's paralyzing. Uh, the governance of this nation, because, you know, I'm dealing with Israel, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, uh, Putin and Ukraine and the Pacific, and I can't pass my resolution condemning Hamas and supporting Israel, um, you know, until we have a speaker in the chair, because we're dysfunctional right now. We can't govern. And the, the worst thing about it, Jake, is that, you know, when I talk to our adversaries, they say democracy doesn't work. Chairman Xi says that all the time the present side. Democracy doesn't work. It's dysfunctional. And I don't want to prove them right. We have to get this thing resolved if we have to stay up here every
1: day until we get a speaker in the chair. Well, again, I don't want to be, I don't want to be rude about it, but it works okay, except for a certain faction of the Republican Party that refuses to, to help it go along. I mean, the people that refuse to accept the election of 2020 That's the Jim Jordans and the people who refuse to, like, allow 200. I mean, the reason we don't have a speaker is the Jim Jordans and the Matt Gaetzes. It's the people who refuse to accept democracy as the best way. I mean, I don't know why Steve Scalise isn't the the speaker right now. I thought that you guys were just, okay. you got behind closed doors and the majority picked Steve Scalise. And then for some reason, the other 99 House Republicans just decided they weren't going to go along with the majority of the majority.
10: And I think that's the point I was trying to make not trying to be, make a joke out of it, but I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy was, I thought, doing it about the best job he could under the circumstances, and eight Republicans joined with all Democrats to oust him. Then Steve Scalise uh, rose, um, and you know, it was a vicious campaign, really awful things were said about him, uh, you know, and he's a great guy. He got shot on the baseball field, we all remember that. Yeah. For God's sakes, he has blood cancer right now. And and these uh, accusations thrown on a very uh, nasty campaign. I got to tell you, those tactics though, Jake backfire, I don't know if we're going to have another ballot on Jim Jordan, but it seems like every time we go to the floor, he loses more votes along the way. So I do think um, a candidate is going to rise out of the ashes and hopefully bring some
1: sanity back to
10: my party and and to the House.
1: He just stormed out of his office uh, like like an angry man who uh, who who, uh, lost a a divorce court hearing. So I I don't think that meeting went well. Uh, Chairman McCall, come back uh, soon, uh, hopefully to talk about the resolution you're about to successfully introduce about something important because you have a new speaker. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. And we're back with breaking news on Capitol Hill We're a meeting between Republican congressmen who do not want Jim Jordan to be speaker uh, and Jim Jordan just ended moments ago. uh, CNN's Manu Rogers on Capitol Hill right outside the room where they met. Manu, I'm no expert on body language, but boy, that did not look like it went well based on uh, how Congressman Jordan stormed out. What did you hear from the Republicans as they left?
17: Yeah, I didn't seem to have changed many minds here. In fact, I caught up with several of these members as they left. They are still opposed to voting for Jim Jordan. Carlos Jimenez being one of them, the Republican from Florida, who voted for Kevin McCarthy, said that he is not changing his mind. Also, uh, uh, Congressman Rutherford, also someone who has not voted for Jim Jordan, also indicating that he would not vote for, uh, for Jim Jordan. It's not clear exactly what Jordan's plans are. In fact, when he left, pretty quickly, he didn't answer really any questions other than to say it was a good conversation. Several of the members I spoke to as they left, said that just they're not clear what the plan is, whether or not Jordan will actually go to the floor and force a vote. He did address those threats that have come against several of those members who voted against John uh, Jim Jordan, those threats, death threats and the like. He said he was not involved at all. He condemned those threats behind closed doors. But he also didn't seem to make any headway in convincing some of these members. There were some, there were some members who said, just would not want to say one way or the other how they will vote. One of them, Congressman Vern Buchanan of Florida, said, we'll see if there's actually of votes. So there's just a lot of uncertainty, Jake, at this key moment where everything is paralyzed on the Hill amid this Republican infighting, this GOP leadership crisis. But the big question is, will Jim Jordan bow out, out? Will there be another candidate? Will they prop up Patrick McHenry in the interim, which is badly divided the Republican conference? All unanswered questions at this point as Republicans still plunge deeper into turmoil.
1: Drama, drama, drama. Manuraju, thank you so much. We're going to keep tracking all the developments on Capitol Hill, but let's turn to our other major story out of Israel where the families of the hundreds of innocent civilians, women, children, the elderly, taken hostage by the terrorist group Hamas are, are living a nightmare, uh, including the loved ones of 84-year-old Ditsa Haman. Uh, Ditsa is still missing after being kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. Her family says she's already in poor health. Uh, and joining us now is Corey. Shema Ditsa is her mother-in-law. Corey, I'm so sorry to be talking with you under these horrific circumstances, and this is such a stupid question, but how are you and the family holding up?
18: Um, It's never stupid to ask how we are. I mean, it means that people care, and that helps give us hope that that my mother-in-law will be brought home safe. So not stupid. Um it's um it it's hard, you know we're thinking about her all the time, you know every time we 're doing something it's it's you know how is she? is she okay? we're worried
1: What should we know about dieso i I'm looking at pictures of her right now. Put some pictures back up, guys. Um, uh, when we look at pictures of her, i mean she looks like a she looks like a sweet bubby, she looks like a sweet grandma what? What do you want people, when they think about the segment later tonight or tomorrow or over the weekend, what do you want people, like what's the one thing you want us to know about her? What's the one thing you want us to remember about her when people are praying either tomorrow or Saturday or Sunday for her well-being?
18: Well, I mean, she is a sweet Bubby and she's loving and kind, but she's also fierce and brave um, and wonderful um, and strong in her own way. Um, she is 84 years old and maybe her body is not as strong, but she is a very strong person, um, has been through a lot in her lives. Um, and um, she's a person who I like, to think she has an open heart, um, open arms, open mind, um, and has always been a model for me of just um, being loving and kind. Uh, she, is a social worker. She she got her MSW in her late 40s, early 50s, and she practiced until she was over 80 years. She was 80 and a little bit, and she got tired of driving back and forth. And um, she's always taken care of children and babies and families, has been her special area of expertise. And we're sure if she's at all able, that's what she's doing now. She's with other hostages and um yeah, yeah that that yeah. And, and she and she loves people and and she's a person who cares about peace and 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 others and others should care about her too as part of the human family
1: so i'm, I'm hearing that one of her grandkids found an apparent hostage video um with her in it um, i don't know if you watched it but but tell us about hearing that watching so- watching it if you did i don't know
18: well, um, so, um, I hate to think of, of, so they were scouring these videos and these videos are horrific. They're basically celebratory videos of people being kidnapped and, and, and killed and, 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 you know, bodies desecrated and and that's horrible. I was not the person in the family who was scouring these, but one of the grandchildren um, did. Um, and, um, luckily the one that she was in was, that, and I saw that video, so it was relatively shorter and um, kind of in what passes as good news for our family. For us, it was actually proof that she was alive and when she was abducted. So we saw the back door that, you know, that's the door that we come in, you know, when we come to Israel from the airport, that's where we go directly. That same door that we walk in for that loving hug from our safta uh, you know, from my mother-in-law, um, they smashed that door um, in. So you could see it almost like a body camera footage of them smashing the door. Um, and then we could see her. It seems like she was being let out. We just saw kind of the top Part um, of her issues being led out um, she seems to be walking and then she's being put into what looks like some sort of a, a truck um so it was very hard to watch that but on the other hand we had had we had heard a story that she'd come out and 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 yelled for help and someone came out to help her and was not able to because there was just there were too many terrorists around her so we had sus- we thought she was taken alive but this was proof. And this video also allowed her to be recognized officially as a hostage. So for us, it was good to see.
1: Yeah. Well, I know.
18: Amazing as that sounds.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's this is the messed up world we live in. Um, I know I speak for everybody watching that. um, I hope you come back and tell with her and tell us about how she's reacclimating and how she's happy to be with the family and and all of that. And please stay in touch with us. um, And we're going to keep covering this. We're we're not moving. We're not moving on. We're this. We're going to stay on the story, Corey. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, and
18: and we appreciate the the love and support and care. And the more the people can do to say bring those hostages home safe, you know, we hope that that will help to do so. Yeah. Please get us word of them. And so we hope. So um, thank you. We appreciate.
1: And we hope that the people who are watching in Qatar and Turkey, and Egypt, who have influence on Hamas are exerting that influence because it's really important to innocent people who want peace, who want the Palestinians yes. to have a thriving homeland in Gaza. Corey, thank you so much. We really and, appreciate it. Thank
18: you. And that would be my mother-in-law, too. Thank you. And, and us. I know. Thank
1: you. I know. We'll be right back. Shock and grief in Israel over the surprise Hamas terrorist attack that killed hundreds of innocent men, women, and children has served as a tragic rallying point around the Israeli flag, but not necessarily for everyone around its leader, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Some survivors of the attacks are now venting their frustrations, even blaming Netanyahu for not protecting Israel from the Hamas attacks, such as this survivor who spoke to Politico, quote, they abandoned my daughter to die. That doesn't go away. I'll never forget. A sentiment shared somewhat by Al Waldman, who also lost his daughter when Hamas murdered her at a music festival. He posted this image On Instagram with a caption that says, quote, every day this man sits in his chair as Prime Minister will cause suffering to all sides, unquote. Esther Solomon is the editor-in-chief of Haaretz English, and she joins us now. Esther, thanks for joining us. And I want to start with an editorial from Haaretz that links Netanyahu's indictment in three corruption cases with the massive intelligence failure that, that missed this attack, saying that he failed to put national interests ahead of his own, quote. This was the reason for establishing this horrific coalition and the judicial coup advanced by Netanyahu and for the enfeeblement of top army and intelligence officers who were perceived as political opponents. The price was paid by the victims of the invasion in the Western Negev, unquote. Do you think that it's in Israel's best interest for Netanyahu to resign?
19: Well, that's a very difficult question. The question, let's take it step by step. First of all, accepting that he bears ultimate and full responsibility. He hasn't said one word of that. Most of Israel's intelligence and military uh, chiefs have actually come out with the mayor culpa and say, we really messed up. That's something, you know, this absolute catastrophe, catastrophe that happened to Israel, it was on our watch. National has totally failed to do that. And there is no doubt that many of the, uh, from the moment that he established this extremist coalition, He has had tunnel vision to try and keep himself out of jail and diverting uh, the attention of uh, the most important parts of uh, Israeli uh, government to anything but the deterrence of Israel's uh, enemies. And they were watching and they were watching how what he was doing was dividing the country and they were watching with great glee. And then this a uh, terrible attack by Hamas happens. And York- he still has taken no responsibility whatsoever.
1: A New York Times op-ed um, from Gershom Gorenberg called for Netanyahu to resign. Um, you know Gorenberg, but for people out there who don't, he's a respected journalist and historian. He's obviously progressive. Quote, despite the devastating crisis, Netanyahu remains aloof and his government dysfunctional. Uh, given that obviously this was um, not only an intelligence failure, but a, but a military readiness failure, How do you think the Netanyahu government has handled the crisis since uh, October 7th? So let's say starting October 8th.
19: Well, it was a very slow reaction, obviously horrifically slow to begin with. At least now there is some understanding that how things were going on before can't continue the same way. So a new uh, emergency government Uh, was established with the participation of more centrist figures who have significant military experience in order that, in effect, it bypasses some of the more crazy and provocative and unhelpful voices in his government because the country is more or less being governed now by a small war cabinet of no more than five people.
1: Hmm. Esther Solomon from Haaretz. And I just so you know, I just took out a subscription uh, October 7th. Uh, Thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate the work, uh, work that you do over on Capitol Hill. It's not just Republicans that are not getting along. A number of Democrats are voicing concerns uh, over how some of them are responding to events of the last few days. We're going to take a look at that next. Bubbling beneath the surface of the Democratic Party here in D.C. are some real resentments of fellow Democrats still blaming Israel for the hospital explosion, despite U.S. intelligence, classified and unclassified, suggesting that it was actually a misfired Palestinian rocket that did that damage. Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, It's truly disturbing that members of Congress rushed to blame Israel for the hospital tragedy in Gaza. Who would take the word of a group that just massacred innocent Israeli civilians? Over our key ally, innocent Israelis were the victims of a terrorist attack that resulted in the largest loss of Jewish lives since the Holocaust. Now we know that the tragedy at the Gaza hospital was not caused by Israel, unquote. Congressman Jared Moskowitz, Democrat of Florida, wrote, quote, my Democratic colleagues who blamed Israel should take down their posts, unquote. Now, one of the congresswomen Moskowitz is referring to updated her post, noting that, quote, the U.S. intelligence assessment is that this was not done by Israel. But the other, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, not only has she not updated her post, she took the stage to address protesters calling for a ceasefire in Washington, D.C. last night and issued a political threat to the President of the United States.
0: President Biden, not all America's with you on this one, and you need to wreck A vast majority just like this, and we still stand by and say nothing. We will remember this.
1: And the congressman's tweet blaming Israel for what happened is still up. CNN's Jessica Dean joins me now. So, Jessica, uh, Democrats have been very eager to highlight the embarrassing dysfunction of House Republicans when it comes to the speaker crisis, but um, these are some tensions that we're seeing uh, among House Democrats. Uh, on this issue of Israel and uh, the Palestinians yeah, as well. Yeah, you're
20: seeing those fault lines. And I talked to several House Democrats today, and one of them told me uh, in their words that her colleagues are furious so over Lee's this. Colleagues? Yes, uh, that they're very frustrated, that it's not just public perception over this, that they think that these sorts of comments that go against U.S. intelligence are, are dangerous in a way by spreading that message. And they put it to me this way. They said... Why is she believing Hamas's word over the U.S. intelligence agencies? And there is, I'm told, a push for her to sit for an intelligence briefing and see the intelligence herself uh, with the hope that that will inform uh, some messaging going forward. I did ask if she has done that or if she had plans to do that to her office. I've not gotten a response from them. We also know that some of her colleagues have complained to the Democratic leader in the House, Akeem Jeffries, about this. I talked to another House Democrat that said... Um, You know, they've really seen the the House Democrats range from being outspoken on this. Debbie Wasserman Schultz told my colleague Annie Greer that this is a vile position for the congresswoman to take. Others are kind of trying to, like, stand back, give her some room to perhaps walk this back, Mm -hmm. uh, that it kind of ranges. But they said that that Fetterman tweet that you just read in the lead-in there, that that sums up how a lot of House Democrats feel right now.
1: So I talked to a, a U.S. senator who attended a classified briefing and said, that the intelligence, the classified intelligence, makes it clear. There's, there's no doubt that this was pa- Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That it's very, very clear. But are, are Democrats afraid that if they call out Congresswoman Salib, that they will alienate and anger the progressive base of the Democratic Party that is far more critical of Israel.
20: Far more critical of Israel and has been part of the Democratic coalition in winning these elections in the last several cycles, right? So they have been a critical part uh, to the Democratic coalition. The sense that I'm getting from talking to people is they there is frustration, though, bubbling. And, and what I'm interested to see is over the next day or two, if, this continue, if she continues to hold on to this, if, if people start to be more outspoken, if we hear from more of her colleagues uh, on the record uh, in a more outspoken way on
1: this. Very interesting. Jessica yeah. Dean, thank you so much. Coming up next, a huge development in that Georgia election subversion case. A former Trump lawyer flips what that surprise plea deal could mean for Donald Trump and for other defendants. Stay with us. A major development in Donald Trump's legal troubles today. Former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell of Release the Kraken fame pleaded guilty in the election subversion case in Fulton County, Georgia. As part of her plea, Dale Powell is admitting her role in the breach of election systems in rural Coffee County, Georgia. She is also required to testify at future trials. And although we don't know which ones, we should know Donald Trump is a co-defendant in the case If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show where you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night.